So shall we start now and the panel discussion on channel ethnic policy and uneasy, and uneasy harmony. And I've got three very distinguished people. My person on my le immediate left is Professor Guan Kai from Minzu University, Nationality University in Beijing. And Dr. I get the, um, Matthew, Matthew Erie uh, from, sorry, but Oxford. From Oxford University and Ma uh, Ma Millward from, from Georgetown. From mm -hmm. Georgetown. Sorry, I didn't. Uh, university. So we, we first start, each of the panelists would have 10 to 15 minutes for a short statement, and then after that, the floor will be, uh, be open to the floor for questions and comments. So I first ask Professor Guan to, to start. Yeah. You have you some want to go word to give, yes. You want, why don't you come here? Uh, do, do you need to speak the, uh, first before me? Oh, it's okay. It's okay, okay. <coughs> uh, I actually hear all. Okay, okay, so I... I, I oh, you, oh, you want to sit oh, on this okay. chair? Maybe, maybe I... I, I So, uh, in the summer of 2009, on the streets of Wurumqi, and uh, you know, uh, nearly 200 people died in a few hours due to mass violence. That year was also the 60th anniversary of the People's Republic of China. And uh, two weeks before the National Day, this huge ornaments occurred in the Tiananmen Square. We call them pillars of ethnic unity. Actually, altogether, there are 56 pillars. Everyone represents one ethnic group in China, including the majority Han. And if you will this 
from a little bit far, you cannot recognize which pillar belongs to which group. So that's also represents, uh, of course, it's a symbolic response to the Urumqi July 5 uh, incident, but also it, it is, uh, implies the deep logic, the cultural logic of the ethnicity in China's understanding. Ten years ago, the Chinese government issued a series of stamps to uh, demonstrate the values of equality and the unity of ethnicities. So we can see the same logic. And, you know, in China, the ethnicity is something managed by the state. Actually, since 1949, the Chinese government monopolized the classification towards ethnic minorities. Actually, so, so many Chinese students here, so we know in our ID card, we have a special item, Minzu, nationality or ethnicity, and it is officially marked by the government. So that's something special in the world. Well, only China, we have an official conducted social project, huge project to recognize the ethnicity. Actually, today's ethnic politics derived from the revolution. During the revolution, we have, we have protected new principles, political principles towards ethnic minorities. And we can see the most important ideas derived from the revolution. And even today, this revolutionary discourse still remains in public uh, social life in terms of ethnic, uh, ethnic politics. However, China politics are relatively radical action style policies since 1949 to the minorities. And the chi China conducts the huge project to re for uh, recognition of ethnic identity. So everyone has a very specific fixed ethnic identity for the Chinese citizen. And the Chinese government established a system of ethnic regional autonomy. And Chinese government put invest a lot to the minority areas to, uh, in order to push the process of modernization. And also very important, you know, Due to the revolution, the traditional social hierarchy was almost completely destroyed, but replaced by new ruling elites. Who are them? They are mostly cadres and intellectuals fostered by the state. The institution, Minzu University in China, where I work, was the most important one in this domain. And we can see, in the early time of the People's Republic, the ethnic policies were very successful, and they were very appreciated by the minority communities. And Chinese government also used these policies to mobilize 
in grassroots level the minority communities to support the socialist nation building project. And it changed China a, a lot. We know after the collapse of Qing Dynasty, China used to be a country politically fragmented. But the new China, since 1949, the new the Communist Party remained a unitary, multi-ethnic new China. That's the up, uh, that's a historical achievement. Uh, it's also we can uh, we can see it's also a miracle something. <laughs> but however, things are always changing, right? Before the <coughs> open up and the reform, we can see even during the days of the miserable great cultural revolution, ethnic conflict was relatively slight in social life. But after that, we, we can see the ethnicity, ethnic identity became more and more important in social life, especially in contemporary China. So we can see so many challenges. I, I, I don't want to go to uh, very specific due to time limit. And the government has to be give response to the new situation. But here we can see a highway path dependence. The, in government's toolkit, two things are most important. One thing is financial investment. So we can see many projects in national level to pr promote new investments to the minority areas, actually so, uh, in a huge number. Another, another, uh, another thing is social control. They reinforced social control. But the situation didn't become uh, better, uh, simply to say. So the situation gradually demonstrates it is very complicated structure. Till now, we can, we can see if we just use two main tools of investment and social control, it's not, its effects are not as good as people expect. So there are some new ideas proposed by scholars. Typically, as Professor Maroon, uh, he, he used to be my supervisor for my MA degree. <laughs> From Beida, Maroon proposed a very famous, his idea, depoliticization. And afterwards, uh, <clears throat> represented by Professor Huang Gao from Tsinghua University and others, they proposed the idea of the second generation of ethnic policy. They regard the existing ethnic policy as the first generation, and these policies should be given up, replaced by the second generation. However, uh, this idea is quite similar to uh, somehow melting pot approach in US. And uh, I will talk about the criticism in the next page, but I, I want to, to say one, one thing. It is remarkable. These ideas derived from a deep concern 
deep anxiety for the crisis of Chinese national identity at present. And this, while these ideas occurred uh, publicly, you know, the uh, striker called for the mainstream society. At the same time, it caused a hot debate. There are many scholars opposed to these ideas, both of Han scholars and minority scholars, uh, also including uh, international scholars. They, uh, according to the opponent side, those ideas, the essence of those ideas is just to scale down the rights and the welfare enjoyed by the minorities right now. So I uh, list some, some, how to say, some schools who, who support and who oppose, but it's not uh, really, uh, how to say, really accurate. It's just to, to you can see, there, this debate per se is also, in my view, is also a part of the conflicts, uh, of the ethnic part, uh, conflicts in China. Okay, so let's go to the conclusion. We can see after the revolution uh, period, after the opening up and the uh, reform, China has changed a lot, especially the relationship, state society relationship has been changed radically. Because in most era, China actually was a state without society, but right now, you see the society grew up, so we are facing a new situation that is not the same as before, and the, but the policy toolkit remains same as before, so there is a gap between the question and the instruments to deal with the question. So that's the problem. But however, it's very hard to say in the debate, which side is completely right? Actually, both sides, they have their own stand, and it is, uh, we, we cannot make a very simple judgment to the debate, because, I, how to say, it's, a, it's a, little, a little bit complete, you know, because, you know, for a, for a nation state era, National identity, of course, is very important. But other, uh, on the other side, we cannot neglect the ethnic identity. The, the ethnic identity is not just based on rationality. It's also based on affection, emotion, and uh, there are specific concerns. So how to deal with, how to compromise in between these two stands that's a serious challenge to Chinese government. But right now, we, we, we cannot say there is a very clear direction in this regard. So I say it is an uncertain future in this regard. But however, to my understanding, the principle derived from the revolution, uh, the equality and unity of nationalities, these principles, and it's, uh, they are also the political goals for the government 
will remain. They will be not changed. I, I'm sure for that. So, but how to reach to these goals? How to manage diversity under the realistic context? That's the real question. And I think it's not the question only China is facing too, but also the whole world is facing too. Thank you very much. For this very illuminating presentation, and yeah, okay, you want to go? I think it's me. Um, yeah. Okay. These are the chairs. So it's printed differently, a different variety. We've sort of decided how. Yeah. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Matthew Erie. I want to thank uh, Professor Hussein and the organizers uh, of this conference for, for having me and also for putting on this panel, uh, which is a very important topic. So really, it's a pleasure and a privilege to be here. To begin with a, a, a word of caution, when we talk about ethnic policy in, in China, oftentimes we're dealing with what seems like extremes. So, Usually in the U.S. or in the U.K., when we hear about ethnic policy in China, it's through the lens of Tibet or Xinjiang um, and the representations of Western media of what's happening there. And usually the image is pretty uh, gloomy, uh, death and destruction, hatred, animosity, Sturm and Drang, um, Hegelian master-slave dialectic. It's not, a, it's not a positive picture at all. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if we were to look at Chinese rep representations of what's happening in these regions, uh, then we see the big happy family, uh, everybody fulfilling their respective Chinese dream. Um, the truth is probably somewhere in between. And I would say when we think about these policies, what they're doing and how they impact the everyday lives of ethnic minorities in China, it's important to underscore that uh, the impacts are, are different in different regions according to different uh, populations. Okay, So we have to adhere to uh, a rule that looks at those uh, uh, exact locations and what, and what is happening there. So as an overview, as we just heard from uh, Professor Guan, there are um, basically three prongs to ethic policy in, in China. Um, the first, of course, is the uh, Minzu Shibia, the Ethic Identification Project, which began in the 1950s, more or less concluded in that decade. This was uh, a kind of borrowing from the Soviet Union. Of course, there were elements from other uh, uh, empires, the, 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 the British in included, in terms of the categories that were used to identify these groups and to effectively create these groups. Um, and then we have the preferential policies, the Yohui Zhengzi, which impact uh, aspects of education, employment, uh, to some respect, family planning, the one-child policy, uh, and even some uh, criminal law measures in terms of how they impact ethnic minority populations. And we've seen more tinkering, more adjustment in, in this prong of ethnic policy uh, than, than elsewhere, so some modifications there. And then lastly, we have the ethnic autonomy system, the, the Minzu Zizhi, which basically are certain areas uh, that are identified as having a sort of special jurisdiction. Um, despite the fact that China has changed rapidly over the last 60 years or so, um, we see very little change in this category. Okay, So it's a kind of doldrums, if you will. So you may want to think about that. 
I want to expand a little bit about on this area, this particular problem of ethic autonomy. So it sources in, in PRC law. Uh, it has a basis in the Constitution. There's a whole section devoted to it. Uh, it's also mentioned in the LIFAFA, the Law and Legislation of 2000. And then it has its own piece of legislation, the Law and Regional Ethic Autonomy. And the, really the goal of this particular idea is to allow the uh, People's Congresses, that is the legislative bodies in these regions, to issue legislation, well, really regulations, that can modify national legislation in light of local circumstances to protect the customs, languages, and traditions of ethnic minority populations. And they can do that through basically three types of regulations. The autonomous regulations, which are the most comprehensive. Individual regulations, which just kind of identify or target one, uh, one particular goal. For example, it might be public hygiene or something along those lines. And then lastly, flexible or supplementary regulations, which these are the ones that actually modify the national legislation. So here, for example, it might be the minimum age for marrying. So it might be lowered in certain areas where there are ethnic minorities uh, because they have certain customs when they might marry uh, earlier. So how are we doing in terms of the actual use and implementation of these autonomous regulations? Well, at the autonomous region level, there are five of these in China, we've seen zero. There have been zero regulations issued or implemented uh, in these regions. Okay? We see more activity at the sub-autonomous region level. So these autonomous areas as you see here, are at the, the regional level, prefectural, county, and down. And it's really at the prefecture and down that we see uh, people's congresses of these particular administrative levels issuing more of these regulations. Now, these are not official numbers. Uh, it's very hard to identify official statistics on this. I have these numbers from uh, Chinese colleagues who are working on these questions um, in China. So as an anthropologist, uh, one of the things I wanted to do in my research is to understand how uh, minorities actually live within these so-called autonomous areas. So what is life like, and how do they uh, bring their religious beliefs and their customs into uh, the public domain in these areas where you might not see so much legislation to, to protect those religions or, or traditions. Uh, so I lived for two years in an area uh, it's right smack in the middle of China called Linxiahui Autonomous Prefecture. So this is uh, the prefecture level um, below the uh, autonomous region. Uh, this is a map. I like this one because it shows it kind of in the middle of the world. You have Africa here and North America <laughs> here. Uh, really makes me feel good. Uh, and so the prefecture is named Linxia. There's actually a county named Linxia as well. And then the, the city, the prefectural capital, is also called Lin Xia. Um, and this is a very unique place. It um, has a population of about 2.1 million people, 59% of whom are minorities. Um, ma the majority of those are Muslims. Uh, the Chinese Muslims, the Hui, uh, are the <coughs> largest number. And then there's the Dongxiangzu, the Mongolian Muslims, the Salar, uh, which are a, a Turkic Muslim group. There's a smattering of Uyghurs in there. Uh, and then the rest of the ethnic minorities are primarily uh, Tibetans. So it's a very diverse region. But really, it's primarily a Muslim place. 
and the Hui call it China's little Mecca, because really since uh, more or less the, the 17th century, it's been one of the centers for Islam in China. In the last uh, 150 years or so, uh, it's really become the center of education, of, of Islamic education in China. So how is the Linxia Hui Autonomous Prefecture doing in terms of those autonomous regulations? Well, uh, mama hoo So over the last uh, 60 years, it has only about seven regulations, okay? Now, of those seven, only one touches on the question of uh, the law of Muslims, right? So Muslims have their own law. It's called Sharia, which we may actually better translate as Islamic law and ethics. It's not really law, though it includes aspects of law. Uh, so the one regulation that touches on aspects of Sharia is on halal food production, okay? uh, which is seen as kind of the, the, the least dangerous aspect of, of Sharia. Um, so Hui then are, are, are situated between uh, state law and religious law. Um, PRC law does not recognize religious law, whether it's the, the, the law of Islam or Christianity or, or Buddhism, what have you. Uh, it has no legal status. But it's important to note that neither does the UK recognize religious law in this regard. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. We can talk about the question and answer. So Sharia, which I'm translated as Islamic law and ethics, is considered a, a minjianfa, an unofficial law or a popular law. Minjian literally means between the people or among the people, uh, this type of law in China. So um, even though it doesn't have an official status, for Hui, they must abide by Sharia. It is one of the core tenets of being a Muslim. Okay? So you cannot be a proper Muslim, what Hui call a hugud Muslim, a legitimate Muslim, unless you abide by Sharia. Now, they're all Sunnis that adhere to the Hanafi school. The Hanafi is the most flexible of the schools of jurisprudence, but nevertheless, they have this common belief that they must obey their rule, their, their rule being Sharia, in order to, to live a life of authenticity, to live a life of autonomy. Okay? Um, unlike the UK, there are no Sharia councils in China, and there's no religious tribunals to settle matters, disputes, in accordance with Sharia law. So that's a difference between the two uh, states. So the question then is, how do the Hui live a life in accordance with what's effectively a Minjian law, an unofficial law? And that, was, that became the focus of my research. And what I found was that uh, the Hui do practice a form of Sharia. It might be uh, piecemeal, fragmented, it might be diluted, but nevertheless, it's a form of Sharia. And it includes both the branches of the Hanafi school of jurisprudence, the uh, Mu'amalat, which is the law on social relations, the transactional side of the law, and the Abadat, which is the law on ritual or the wor- or aspects of, of worship. So specifically what this means is that Hui will marry in accordance with Islamic law. All right? They will transact... Uh, confer uh, or give property in accordance with the property law of Sharia. Uh, there are many aspects of ritual, uh, ritual law, the abadat, that they abide by in the course of the everyday to live a life of piety. And what's happening increasingly is that uh, over the last, uh, particularly the last 10, 20 years or so, Hui are reconnecting with co-religionists abroad, so the Middle East, Central Asia, uh, Southeast Asia. They do this through a variety of means. 
For example, the Hajj, uh, the number of people performing the Hajj is increasing year by year. This year, I think there were 14,500 people who performed the Hajj. Um, they're doing it through commercial networks. Uh, they're doing it through transactions, educational, intellectual exchanges, studying, for example, in Al-Hazar University in Cairo. Through a number of these different channels, they're building networks with brothers and sisters outside of China, and this is impacting how they think about Islam and how they think about their law. And there's a kind of soft rekindling of a Sharia consciousness that's happening in China. Um, so this became the focus of my book, which is coming out in a few months, uh, insha'Allah. Uh, and, and what I argue is that there's a form of a kind of minjian autonomy. So it's not an autonomy that is a grant from the state. I give you ethnic autonomy. Uh, but rather, it is one that sort of bubbles up from below. It's a, it's a grassroots uh, ground-up form of autonomy where they have to uh, figure out how to abide by these multiple systems of normative regulation, including those of the state and those of their own faith practice. And it's not easy. Okay? Um, what I found, the, the, the view from the mosques of Linxia is that um, there is often a bending of the law. It's not the law is broken, but you can kind of bend it uh, and there's a gray area to the law. And so oftentimes the Hui operate in those gray areas. And the centerpiece of this entire uh, system, if you call it that, is the clerics. It's those that are leading the prayer uh, in, the, in the mosques, that perform the, uh, the duties in the mosque, because they're also mediating disputes in the mosque, uh, disputes that members of their community develop, whether it's uh, a man and a wife, uh, a, a father and a son, two neighbors, and they're applying Sharia to those, to those disputes. And yet they can only do so up to a point uh, because they cannot actually enforce a religious law. To do so would then uh, incur the, uh, the intense gaze of the state. So to return to our, our, the question that brings us together, um, many states are confronting the issue of how to integrate Sharia into the state legal system. All right? It's not just China. Uh, Canada, the U.S., U.K., uh, etc., uh, France, are all in the midst of intense national debates, and really it's a global debate, about how to do this. So before we uh, launch into a, a critique of China, we should situate that in a broader comparative frame of reference to, to look at how other countries are doing this. And really nobody has uh, an easy, a quick answer, solution to this problem. Nevertheless, the current ethic autonomy system doesn't seem to help the matter. Uh, it creates several pressure points as Hui are trying to abide by these various legal orders um, and, and sometimes can quite... Uh, disadvantage them. And for example, uh, Muslim women in, in the question of, of, uh, of marriage, and we could talk about more uh, in the Q&A if, if you like. Um, so my view as an anthropologist is that we should pay more attention to how actors on the ground are actually dealing with these questions in the, in the course of the everyday before we impose models, whether from the Soviet, former Soviet Union or the U.S. or what have you, but we should look at um, how people are actually dealing with this, the kind of questions they're asking, and sort of the issues that they're looking at, and also their, uh, their solutions in terms of how they would approach this down the line. Um, and I think through that, we can increase the representation of people. We can also ease some of the tensions we see in terms of the legislation and how it impacts people, and also 
hopefully increase um, the, the efficacy of the judiciary. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Yeah, I will, if, if no one minds. I think you can hear me okay, right? Okay. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank the um, China Development Society and all the organizers of this wonderful forum. Um, we were all just talking. It's remarkably well organized, organized down to every last detail. One example, uh, I had someone to hold my coffee cup for me while I went to the bathroom. <laughs> so I, they have sound a trivia, Joe And I'm also going to do, as as I'm going forward today, um, I'm going to do something I advise my students not to do when they give a a presentation uh, at this kind of thing. I wrote out my remarks. Thank you. And I'm going to read them. And that's because I want to cram a lot in. But I always tell my students, don't read it. But I'm going to read it anyway. Um, And I'm going to read fast. So I hope your all right, so as a little introduction, um, the PRC and the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, Communist Party, now face a crisis in regard to Xinjiang uh, and Tibet. It's not just a crisis in terms of domestic tranquility and security, though that is what gets the most attention. It presents a continuing challenge to uh, China's very identity, uh, as, as Guangkai mentioned today, uh, and also comprises a roadblock in the path towards China's international goals. I will suggest, though, that there is uh, a solution or a path to a solution, one that does not require greater democratization, although I think that would help. Um, And also, it does not require imitating foreign countries or foreign systems, but rather quite the opposite. It involves properly understanding China's own early modern history. It involves uh, and transcending narrow, chauvinistic, and ultimately foreign notions of nationhood. It involves embracing and reinventing a flexible indigenous model of sovereignty and, territori- and territoriality, one that might be called centralized pluralism. And I'm, I'm coining a term here, um, floating it out there to see how it works. Such a creative political and cultural solution could even provide an example to other countries with similar problems arising from ethnicity, nationality, uh, and territoriality. Okay, a few words about uh, the current crisis. And I'm speaking, I'll only speak about Xinjiang. Obviously, a lot of this could also be uh, applied to Tibet with slight differences as as well. Everyone here is aware, um, and even Inner Mongolia, perhaps. Everyone here is aware of the famous events associated with the Xinjiang crisis. Since 2008, there have been several well-known incidents of violence, and their frequency seems to be increasing. This is in stark contrast to the decade uh, preceding, that is, the decade of 1997 through 2007 or so, when Xinjiang was free from violent political incidents. Since 2008, by contrast, there has been an alleged attempted uh, in-air destruction of a plane, uh, the massive riots in Urumqi that were already uh, mentioned in in 2009, uh, attacks in 2013 involving vehicles and explosives in Tiananmen Square uh, and the Urumqi train station, an Urumqi outdoor market attack, and, of course, the knife attacks in Quinming uh, in 2014, uh, on March 1st. Those attacks were widely publicized in Chinese sources. All but the riots of of those attacks I've just listed, all but the riots are rightly called terrorism insofar as they involve attacks on random civilians uh, for political purpose and thus fit the playbook of Salafist extremist groups outside of China. And this is a new thing to occur in China. Um, Simply using the terrorism label doesn't 
entirely help to explain these incidents, however. Now, much, west, much less well-known than those incidents I just mentioned, and hardly ever discussed in Chinese language press, has been ongoing unrest in southern Xinjiang, particularly the Hotan area, mainly involving conflicts between police and the people uh, in demonstrations, house searches, possible attacks on police stations and checkpoints. Um, there have been incidents in other parts of Xinjiang as well, including the, shooter, the shooting of Uyghur women whose daughters had been incarcerated for wearing headscarves to school. Uh, also in central Xinjiang recently was a raid on a mining operation near Aksu, uh, apparently by a large organized gang made up of se members of several local families. Arising from uh, such events, and likewise part of the crisis, as I see it, uh, is a general um, popular and officially sanctioned discrimination against Uyghurs uh, simply for being Uyghurs. And, oh, that's very small. I don't know how well you can, you can all see that. I'm not going to go through it, but um, this is a document from um, Guangxi recently um, that is telling people uh, how to deal with Xinjiangren. <laughs> <laughs> that's the term that's now being used. I don't know if that's a, um, a euphemistic term or exactly, but you see that more and more. Um, there are many examples of this sort of thing of, of sanctioned discrimination, don't let them stay in hotels, these kind of things. Um, so I'm just putting this up as one example. Um, there, there, there's restrictions on, on housing uh, and, and renting rooms really began with the 2008, uh, 2008 Olympics, too. There's now a Uyghur exodus going on, um, with hundreds if not thousands of Uyghurs trying to leave China annually, many through Southeast Asia. This is another aspect of the crisis. Uyghurs are trying to escape, some perhaps to do bad things, but there are many women and children among them, so it's unlikely that all of the Uyghurs trying to leave are trying to do bad things, such as joining um, ISIS or something like that. While giving few details, official sources simply characterize all of these violent events as terrorism and separatism and attribute it to the infectious ideology of religious extremism. Uyghurs fleeing China, including these women and children, are all going to join jihad. Some outside commentators, pundits, uh, people in think tanks and so on uh, in the West also echo that assessment. Now other specialists would say that there are actually at least two kinds of problem involving the Uyghurs. There's a spectacular uh, random killing for political purpose, what we would call terrorism. And there's also, um, uh, and, and well, so t terrorism possibly supported by groups outside of China. And then there's another type of incidents, more frequent, causing more deaths, which do not involve random attacks on civilians, but are sparked by interaction between people and the authorities, and may in fact be in direct reaction to policies as implemented in Xinjiang localities. Some of the larger incidents in Hotan and recently in Bai County uh, really look more like rebellion than what most would call terrorism. Now, from the point of view of the CCP, it doesn't, re rebellion is no better than terrorism, <laughs> right? Um, but this kind of unrest calls for a different explanation than simply saying religious extremism. All right, real and imagined dangers of this crisis. As with similar attacks in Europe or the United States, Uyghur terrorist attacks are alarming and horrific. But uh, it's important on a policy level not to overreact and make the situation worse. This discussion has been going on in the United States and in the UK and in the EU since 9-11 and before. It's flaring up again in the US with you know, recent um, 
sort of vocal Islamophobia, which we're hearing from Republican political candidates. In China, Uyghur unrest, even terrorist violence, does not amount to an existential threat. It does not in the remotest way threaten Chinese control in Xinjiang. Um, the USSR, back before 1991, did amount to such a threat, um, but no more. No other nation or international body disputes China's sovereignty in Xinjiang, not even recognized Uyghur exile groups in the United States or Europe. Some of the Uyghurs now in Syria may bear watching, but they're a long way from challenging CCP supremacy uh, in Xinjiang. The crisis in Xinjiang does pose a danger to Chinese international position and reputation, however. The CCP has frequently expressed frustration that attacks involving Uyghurs do not seem to elicit sympathy for China um, as a victim of terrorism the way that, for example, France gets sympathy for the recent attacks, right? Um, but rather, when these attacks happen, they seem to, the official comments from uh, journalists, from media in Europe and America, um, from Turkey, for example, um, these seem to be more sympathetic towards the Uyghurs. And this is very frustrating to Chinese officials. The rest of the world does not accept the narrative that, that Uyghur unrest is entirely due to external forces um, and to this cancerous ideology of religi religious extremism. But in the face of this non-acceptance of its narrative, the PRC official policy has been to try to double down on this very narrative, to control information from and about Xinjiang, to restrict journalists' access even more, to deny visas to foreign scholars who work on Xinjiang, um, to persecute the families of Uyghurs abroad, especially those working for news agencies, um, to arrest and sentence um, Ilham Tokti, who is one of the um, intellectuals who you mentioned about at Minzu Dashira, you know, sort of raised up, fostered by the CCP within the Minzu system, um, recently to try and sentence to house arrest uh, the lawyer Puja Chang for his tweets about Xinjiang policy. Um, to kick out French journalist Ursula Gautier um, because of some comments in her article comparing Xinjiang terrorism with Paris. Most recently, uh, a human rights activist, Zhang Haitao in Urumqi, was sentenced to 19 years for some of his posts critical of Xinjiang policy. That's more than Liu Xiaobo got, for example, right? Um, so this extreme defensiveness suggests to me a full-on official panic about Xinjiang and policies there. It also means that although there are many thoughtful uh, people, Han Uyghur or foreign, um, with ideas about this issue, the CCP Center wants to close its ears and shoot the messengers who bring bad news. Does Chung Nanhai have such reliable channels of information from local officials about what's going on in Xinjiang? I'm not sure about that. Now, needless to say, the way the CCP deals with ethnic diversity in Xinjiang and Tibet also reflects how it would deal with multicultural issues elsewhere. The integration of Hong Kong, which we heard about this morning, um, a possible one-country, two-systems solution with Taiwan, uh, relations with Turkey and other Islamic countries um, in Central Asia and the Middle East, which will be so important to the New Silk Road or Obor Initiative, even ex expanded presence in, South China sea, in the South China Sea Basin, um, can be influenced by the Xinjiang issue. Um, increasingly, CCP-led China is seen not only as intolerant of criticism, but as chauvinistic about cultural diversity and promoting um, a narrow form of Han nationalism. All right, uh, let's see. 
All right, in the interest of time, I'm going to skip over some of my um, remarks and get to my sort of final, final point. But sort of very quickly, uh, this is kind of tongue in cheek, but rather than talking about uh, a first generation and second generation of means of policies, I suggest perhaps we could talk about it the way we talk about software releases. So, so Minzu Jungsa 1.0, 2.0, you know, as if they were computer games or something like that. Um, and I suggest that the reason I'm, I'm saying this partially as a joke um, is that I think right now we're actually no longer observing the earlier forms of Minzu Jungsa, at least not in practice, particularly in Xinjiang, um, but rather have uh, implemented a whole new set of much more assimilationist practices than the original Minzu Jungsa um, introduced in the 1950s uh, and, and still enshrined in the Constitution and in the law uh, that Matthew Erie told us about. Um, we, we sort of left that behind in terms of actual practice. And just to give some examples of that, we, we talked about some of the, these keywords of the new generation, so I'm going to skip that. Here's just some examples of the new kinds of policies that have been going on um, uh, in Xinjiang, um, which obviously affect the practice of, of Islam. They affect uh, cultural aspects of being Uyghur, in particular language, but also clothing, uh, headgear, hairstyle, those sorts of things. And I'll leave that up there and let you sort of look at that. Now, I would argue that the rationale for many of these new policies um, and the rationale for much of the discussion of the so-called second generation of, of Minzu policies are based on inaccurate understandings of history and inaccurate understandings of how ethnicity works elsewhere. Uh, the new theorists, in fact, have, I would argue, neglected China's own indigenous model for working with ethnicity and, and managing it, a model with a historically more successful track record than the mythological monocultural nation-state sort of nation-state imaginary that so many of us um, work with. And this model, I called it Minzu 1.0, um, but I'm really talking about how the Qing dynasty functioned, uh, particularly in the 18th century, but even into the 19th century in Xinjiang. Now, during the Qing, Xinjiang was uh, mainly peaceful for over a century, from the conquest in 1789 right up until uh, uh, 1864 with the big rebellion there, and that and the reason for that rebellion in 1864 was really because the, the fiscal support that Xinjiang government depended on, coming from Nadi, coming from China itself, that got cut off because of the Taiping Rebellion and other functions, other reasons like that. Okay, so the money stopped, local government went downhill fast, corruption, abuses arose, and it was ripe for rebellion. In fact, the so-called Islamic Rebellion really spread in from Gansu, in 1864. The, the key point here is that there was never any, any jihad against Qing government <laughs> in Xinjiang for really a century. Okay? There were minor problems in Kashgar and so on. We could argue about how minor they were, but they weren't based on any kind of um, fundamental inability of Islam in Xinjiang to work with government in Beijing. A lot more could be said about that. But for example, the, the Qing dealt with Islam very flexibly and tolerantly. Um, one of the best examples of this is the fact that the Qing did not require Uyghurs to wear a queue, to w wear a bianzi, or to shave the front of their hair. 
Um, contrast that to today, where so much of the debate is about headgear and religious symbols and hairstyle and beards on men, right? The Qing didn't care. They cared about it for the Han, right? In China, it's, what was it? Keep your hair and lose your head and lose your head. And get, anyway, that was what they told the Ming Dynasty loyalists. So, but if in, they didn't do that in Xinjiang. So during the century of peaceful Qing rule, Xinjiang's population grew, its economy thrived, um, trade with Russia, India, and Central Asia expanded many fold. And this is very clearly documentable. Okay? The Qing posted very few troops in Uyghur areas of southern Xinjiang. How did the Qing do this? Through an imperial system that I'm calling centralized pluralism. Top Qing officials managed foreign affairs, defense, they negotiated foreign trade policy, they officiated over inter-ethnic disputes. But local rule was by local people, that is, the Uyghurs ruling Uyghurs, Mongols ruling Mongols, Han ruling Han, and others, with different administrative systems as necessary. And, most important, there was no attempt at cultural assimilation. There's a lot of discussion about Hanhua as a traditional part of Chinese history. It did not apply. The Qing government did not, and in fact, it actively opposed such things. Now, I am certainly not advocating a return to imperial rule anywhere in China, right? The situation in Xinjiang or Tibet now is, of course, very different from that of two centuries ago when populations were mainly segregated ethnically. But the importance of cultural laissez-faire, which was well, well recognized and even celebrated by the 18th century Qing court as critical to its governments in China and throughout the empire, um, that in, um, well, its governments in, in, in Neidi, in Xinjiang, in Tibet, in Mongolia, in parts of southwest China, in Taiwan, that importance of cultural laissez-faire, I think, is um, being forgotten now. We were talking this morning about one country, two systems. Well, the Qing had a system of, had a one country, multiple systems <laughs> approach that was broadly very successful, I think. Um, all right, now let's consider the so-called first generation Minzu Zhengzi, what I called Minzu Zhengzi 2.0, that based on nominal political authority, autonomy, so the regional autonomy system, and real cultural pluralism. Right. Chinese observers have focused on the relationship of this system to the Soviet model, uh, and after the breakup of the Soviet Union, have considered this approach a liability, a danger. But this, too, is a misreading of history. Uh, if we look to what happened with that actual breaking up of the Soviet Union, the Central Asian republics of the USSR uh, unlike those in Eastern Europe, uh, the Central Asian republics, they did not want to leave the Soviet Union. They were dragged out of it, kicking and screaming. They liked that system. Moreover, the em empire of nations system of the Soviet Union, while it failed economically, succeeded to a remarkable degree in doing precisely what China is struggling to do, imbue a sense of collective identity that transcends linguistic and cultural differences. Uh, nor were China's Minzu policies uh, as instituted in the 1950s and as enshrined in various laws and in the Constitution, nor were they entirely a Soviet import. They were also built upon the Qing and earlier Chinese imperial traditions of centralized plural pluralism, variable administrative systems for non-Han ethnicities in certain territories. And the PRC itself has employed a similar kind of creative remapping of sovereignty and territory before, in particular the special economic zones um, in Shenzhen and elsewhere, um, the notion of one country, two systems initially in Hong Kong, these echo an older indigenously Chinese approach to managing this kind of 
administrative and political and cultural difference um, within a unified overall system. Such arrangements in the 19th century were often decried as imperialist impositions of extraterritoriality, for example, treaty ports. But actually, if you look at the history, which we can do now from the documents, you find out that the Qing itself was often involved in setting up those treaty port arrangements, and that although there were galling aspects of giving privilege to foreigners, there were also very, very useful aspects of that setup, useful for the Qing court itself, uh, and they were behind that. And this is, you know, what, what reading Qing history from the documents has revealed. Okay, so I'm concluding now. Let me conclude with a final point. Issues with religious, cultural, and ethnic diversity, as well as post-imperial tensions in modern nation states, are common worldwide, something my colleagues have said as well. Even, separatist concur even the separatist concerns that China faces are far from unique. Uh, Chinese Communist Party should look beyond China, beyond even the U.S. and the USSR, at other cases, at other sources of inspiration, both positive and negative. Let's think of a few examples here. You can look to Ukraine, Kashmir, uh, Kurdistan, Palestine. On the other hand, you can look to uh, Quebec, uh, Catalonia and Spain, uh, Scotland, and maybe even Puerto Rico in the United States. I don't know if you want to look too closely at Puerto Rico right now, but economically at least. All right, these may seem like wildly disparate and inappropriate examples, but why? Right? We can imagine Xinjiang going in different ways. Through a creative embrace of its own successful historical models of limited political autonomy and cultural pluralism, however, China could not only ease tensions on its own old imperial frontiers, but provide a genuine, historically Chinese example to the rest of the world of how to deal with ethnographic, cultural, and historical diversity. This would be much better than chasing the foreign myth of a monocultural nation-state in a globalizing world where the very notion of a strictly bounded nation-state made up of a monocultural people, guozu iti hua, right? That very notion is antiquated in a globalized world. The ideals of the Minzu system as first implemented in the 1950s in China were correct. Uh, these were not liberal democratic ideals, exactly, but they worked pretty well uh, in the context of the PRC under CCP dictatorship. The problem has been, has been a progressive drifting away from those ideals uh, in the actual implementation of policies and the replacement of the multicultural internationalist ideology of socialism in its heyday with a newly intolerant nativism. And I will stop there. Thank you. So uh, after these three very excellent presentations, the floor is now open for questions and comments. Please keep them brief. So, okay, go ahead. Thank you so much for the speakers. So uh, I'm actually a history major from Amherst College in the States. I'm uh, currently studying abroad in SOAS. So I'm very interested in like Xinjiang and like uh, the history of uh, like ethnic policies in China. But so I think because three uh, talks cover different topics, so I want to integrate them into like three levels of questions. So it might take some time. So uh, first of all, uh, Professor Guan, you talk about this uh, debate going on on reform of ethnic policy in China. So but uh, and you talk about a lot of resistance as well. So could you just clarify 
clarify a little bit in terms of what are the stakeholders in this debate and what are exactly are the resistance that preventing, you know, uh, introducing uh, like, or, or reforming the ethnic policy current, current right now because you're talking about there are a lot of resistance coming from more conservative or communitarian, you know, ideologies. But I'm just wondering if there's any specific stakeholders and like, any specific arguments uh, not in favor of like a reformed version of ethnic policy. And speaking of that, I'm also very interested in like how Islamic law is interpreted in, and uh, implemented in uh, other, parts of, other parts of China other than Xinjiang. Because uh, actually I uh, read Professor uh, Matthew Ayer's paper recently on the uh, Muslim mandarins and also how Islamic law is interpreted in uh, in Lingxia. So I'm very interested in how informal laws became kind of integrated into the state law system. And I'm, uh, since you are talking about currently it's kind of like in a murky state, so I'm wondering, so in the future, will it still be like better to remain the status quo? Or are there like any other better ways for, for example, informal laws, especially and even though it's not recognized as Islamic law, but like integrated into adjudication process, for example, uh, on a lot of aspects of Muslim life. But that's also, but that's also problematic because that's actually based on a very arbitrary definition of like good Muslims and bad Muslims because, you know, in Xinjiang, the situation is entirely different. So I'm also wondering, um, how this idea of cultural lazy affair can uh, can be used in Xinjiang, especially like provided currently the rise of you know uh, nationalism and this talk about like the failure of multi multiculturalism in Europe. So, to what extent can, for example, this cultural lazy affair really be uh, a possible solution for Xinjiang, especially how Communist Party would make itself consistent in terms of its formal policy if right, there's good. any kind of possible change? Good. So, maybe we'll take one more question and then we'll answer the three of us. Um, sir. Uh, yeah, thank you for the talk. Um, I have a question for Professor Newborn, and that is, um, you mentioned this uh, new uh, ethnic policies in Xinjiang. And so I was wondering, what level of government besides this recent new policies in Xinjiang, and is there a difference in the, in the internal purpose of these policies and the implementation by the local authorities? Matthew, do you want to start responding? Sure. Um, so I guess I'll speak specifically to the question about Islamic law that was that was raised. So officially, Islamic law is not applied anywhere in China. Um, so it, it has that unofficial status, right? Um, that's not to say that people are not using it and they're not interpreting it and they're not trying to abide by it. And it does differ according to different locations in China. There's been a good amount of research demonstrating how the Uyghurs um, were engaged in um, practices of Sharia. We have scholarship up until uh, about 1949 that has demonstrated that. There hasn't been too much research uh, on contemporary uh, on the contemporary situation of Uyghurs and their, their practice of Sharia. So we're waiting for, for that field work to be done. Um, obviously, there are logistical uh, reasons for for the lack of, of empirics on that question. Um, in terms of outside of the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, there you see a, a bit more um, uh, research done, and in particular, you see more mobility of Muslims to uh, to interact with uh, authoritative bodies outside of China. So, for example, going to Malaysia to learn about Islamic finance and then bringing that knowledge back to uh, Yinchuan in Ningxia, uh, the Ningxia Hui Autonomous Region, where they're starting uh, Islamic banking uh, uh, finance to allow uh, Muslims to invest uh, in accordance with the principles of Sharia. 
um, although that too has met up with resistance from the government for fear that it would be funding uh, terrorists. Um, outside of the sphere of finance, uh, and, and actually on that score I should mention that increasingly with all this discussion about the new Silk Road and this one belt, one whatever, um, there's increasingly an important role for Huawei to play in reconnecting with uh, Muslim states outside of, of China. So it may be in the best interest of the Chinese state to allow uh, Huawei to write contracts uh, in accordance with uh, Islamic law, uh, which uh, Muslims can, uh, for the most part, do outside of, of places like China. So, for example, in the UK, even though uh, Islamic law does not have an official legal status, they are allowed to write contracts in accordance with Sharia, and there are the religious tribunals that can uh, arbitrate those contracts, and that, that arbitration can be binding upon the parties. Family law is a different question in the UK. That's where you get into the whole question of the Sharia councils, and obviously there's a very hot debate right now in the UK about um, how those impact women's rights. Uh, Baroness Cox has issued, uh, issued various bills to try to uh, regulate those bodies more tightly. So again, these are debates that are happening everywhere. Um, are there better ways to do it in terms of integrating these different systems? Well, um, it's always dangerous to uh, offer concrete solutions. Uh, there's a danger in, in sort of suggesting um, specific institutions should be built. But here I think there, there can be uh, insights and inspirations drawn from other jurisdictions. Uh, for example, thinking about the religious tribunals in, in the UK or, for example, uh, Jewish communities in the US that are allowed to uh, mediate and arbitrate their uh, disputes in accordance with, with Jewish law. So there are some examples out there. And I think, uh, as Professor Millward has, has illustrated, that China historically has allowed for greater flexibility. Um, there are historians, for example, Lauren Benton at NYU have demonstrated that, in fact, empires had a great deal of legal flexibility. There was kind of legal pluralism that they practiced and allowed for, and then that, in fact, was most likely a strength for many of the, the empires in terms of their longevity and, and also their economic might. So there, again, there are some lessons uh, abroad. There are lessons in China's own history in terms of building institutions that may help uh, uh, minorities, Muslims in particular, to abide by these various norms. Thanks. Okay. Uh, so in terms of the debate, so uh, even I show my slide to make analysis uh, who support, who oppose, but actually it's just uh, to use some theoretical concepts to, to make uh, more explicit as possible. But however, you, you know, we can just uh, simply to divide the opinions into two groups. One group is scholars mostly. That, that's it's a very small circle. And uh, you know, it's uh, not a balanced voice among them. So uh, like Maroon, maybe his voice is, uh, is stronger or something. And we can also learn the voice from ordinary people through websites. So we can see there is very strong supporter, supporting voice, pro uh, depoliticization voice on the website. But however, you know, for the government, for the government attitude, I think the government is watching. It's just watching. They they, they they don't give any publicly give any clear judgment or express their opinions even. There is a very high, high, high-ranking official who publicly 
said something like Zhu Weichun, Vice Minister of the Unit Front Department, CCP. But however, I think his voice is just his personal voice. It's not uh, the the governmental uh, decision something. So, so we can see the debate is just a very good um, indicator to show the evolutionary process of the policy update. It is still ongoing. It's not, uh, right now, we cannot see the end of this debate. But debate per se is implicatable. It's, it, it implies a lot of things. That, 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 that's my, that's my uh, understanding. So, so, as, so if you, uh, uh, how to say, uh, I, that's why I give a conclusion that's uncertain future, because, you know, right now we cannot, I cannot see a very clear direction held by the central government. Thank you. Okay. So the first question I had was about how can cultural laissez-faire be used in Xinjiang? Um, two points to answer that. First of all, I think the stop doing more damage would be the first thing. Just so to, Right now, I, I gave that list of policies, which I really think are causing trouble, right? particularly the headscarf issue and so on and so forth. Um, and then more broadly, if those kind of attitudes could you know, inform policy and, and policy makers, uh, I think you know, that would be helpful. One specific way um, is in understanding what Uyghur Islam is, the, the traditional practices of Islam by Uyghurs, and actually how different it is from the uh, type of Islamic practice that is advocated by Salafist forces, by you know, the Taliban, ISIS, and so on. Because it's actually very, very different. It's, it's full of precisely those things which are causing the civil war within Islam. You know, visitation of shrines, you know, music, dancing, all sorts of things. Um, I'm not sure how workable this were, but a Machiavellian strategist who was aware of these sorts of things, sitting in Zhongnan High, would say, aha, let's leverage traditional Uyghur Islam against the type of Islam coming from the other and get nationalism working against ISIS, right? Rather than saying any kind of Islamic practice is, is dangerous, right? So there are things to be done, but generally I think not to worry so much about cultural expression. All right, the second question I was asked is, what level of government designed and is implementing these new policies? I think that was your, your question. And that's a very good question. I haven't, I'm not sure if there are any scholars outside of China or even in China who really know in great detail how this policy making and implementing process is happening. It do, they do seem to be being implemented differentially in different places. For example, you'll see, and maybe this is just a phenomena based on our poor access to information. But we'll, we'll find out that you know, shops in one township outside Khotan are required to sell alcohol and cigarettes, mm -hmm. right, causing trouble. Now, is this across the board? Is this just this township? Or the, the way the headscarf and veiling rules, they were kind of rolled out at a different pace in different places. Was this a deliberate strategy of kind of experimenting? Maybe it is. I don't know. So this is something, I, maybe Gardner Bovingen knows better, or a man named James Latrobe, uh, uh, Professor Latrobe in uh, one of the Australian universities, been working particularly on the veiling issue. So if you look that up, you might find out more. So let's take a couple more questions. Thank you. 
Um, uh, I thank um, prof uh, Mr. Professor Quan Kai and uh, and uh, Professor from Oxford. I'm sorry, <laughs> which one? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you, thank you. Anyway, like uh, to like um, uh, mention the history of the Minzu um, uh, version one, version two, uh, like uh, dated back from the Qing Dynasty. But the one period uh, uh, was missed. Um, that is the period of ROC period. So, uh, like the now the PRC policy uh, or the regional uh, autonomous uh, region uh, uh, region policy. Uh, is kind of uh, progress uh, compared with the the one uh, that is, that of the ROC uh, era, or is like uh, not progress but maybe like even worse. And my second question is that like uh, I'm quite concerned uh, about the democratization of China. So uh, in the future, if China is uh, going democratized, and uh, is it like um, because like. I think it's very different the situation in China uh, compared with, uh, with uh, like a Korea, uh, Korea, Taiwan because they are quite they don't have a minority or uh, ethnic problem. But in China, because like you have Xinjiang, you have Tibet. If China is going there, democratize, maybe uh, these two regions will be uh, will have, will go a different way. I, I'm not sure, but I want to know your comment. And uh, what's more, I already um, because I'm a Hong Konger, I also concerned with Hong Kong. And I want to ask a question related to Hong Kong. That do you think uh, Xinjiang and Tibet uh, can be Hong Kong Hong Kongized, uh, for example, to make them as well uh, uh, special administrative regions? Maybe Hong Kong will be Xinjiangized. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> right, another question, then we'll um, yeah. sir in the back. You've been waiting. All right, uh, thank you first for, uh, for the wonderful panel. Uh, actually, I want to raise a question here to uh, encourage like a, like a cross-panel uh, share of information. So in our discussion, I think we mentioned Tibet, Xinjiang, Inner Mongolia, and also even, even Cantonese culture came into the discussion. But there is a large part in China that we uh, ignored, that, that's the southwestern diaspora. So I think we ignored them because they're relatively... Uh, peaceful and they're not causing problem. So I want to uh, ask Dr. Iri, do you, uh, when you live in, in Linxia, um, the uh, Linxia region, uh, you mentioned that um, there's, a, um, there's a mix of minorities and there is not a, uh, besides for the, uh, the, the Hui minority, there's not a uh, dominant one. Um, and you didn't mention any violent uh, conflict between or among the minorities. So do you think um, we can learn from um, these two regions that having a, a number of minority people living together can actually ease the problem? Uh, why do you go ahead and should I start with that one? Uh, so thank you for your question. Uh, so, there are areas in China, as you identified, in the southwest particular, um, thinking about Yunnan and areas around Yunnan that are incredibly diverse. Um, 
I think that Lixia has its own element of diversity. Part of that is for historical reasons. It was on the original Silk Road, uh, and so a lot of these groups uh, ended up uh, being there and, and developing communities there because of commercial reasons, trade, and so on. And so there was trade actually being conducted um, through the Qinghai-Tibet Plateau all the way uh, down into areas like Yunnan, and it went through Linxia. And the result is that you have this incredible diversity. Now, that's not to say that it's all harmonious. Uh, historically, particularly during the so-called warlord period, uh, there was a great amount of, of, of violence uh, within, uh, between these, these ethnic groups. So the Tibetans, the Hui, the Salar, uh, and then the Han as well. Um, and the introduction of different uh, practices of Islam has also uh, kind of stoked inter-ethnic tensions. Um, for example, if one Sufi group is, becomes identified primarily as the Salars, they may develop antagonistic relations to another Sufi group that is primarily Hui. And so you see ethnicity and, <clears throat> excuse me, religious doctrine being mapped on each other in very complicated ways. Um, so I don't want to say that these regions are, uh, are examples of inter-ethnic harmony. Having said that, uh, in, the, in the current period, uh, relatively speaking, uh, they have positive relationships and they are able to get along. Um, there's incredible uh, uh, communities, for example, just south of Linxia, there's a town called Lintan, which is uh, the, the center of the Shidaotong, which is an, an amazing uh, Muslim collectivity um, that has historically had really interesting relationships with Tibetans, and they have a kind of symbiotic relationship. Um, and so you see in terms of commerce, but also in terms of intermarriage, uh, a great deal of mutual respect. Um, so going back to the question of democracy, um, which a lot of people think about in terms of China, I think it might be interesting to think more about developing models from within and, and looking at how these different groups get along and how they interact. Um, Hong Kong is an interesting model for Xinjiang and Tibet. Uh, I'm not quite sure how it would work in practice, um, but I think it's, it's really worthwhile to reflect on the incredible complexity of these relationships and then possible, uh, possibly building institutions from, from the ground up. Thanks. Okay, so, uh, you know, I... Uh, <clears throat> I, I, I used to live in Hong Kong for two years as a student, and I, I, I could perceive the identity shift among the Hong Kong people from Chinese in colonial time, then Hong Kong Chinese when a few years ago, right now it's just Hong Kong people. But however, I think, uh, I think the, the case in Hong, the Hong Kong case is not the same as what happened in Tibet and Xinjiang, and uh, uh, that's totally different because in Hong Kong, due to the different historical background, it's uh, one country, two systems. But in Tibet and Xinjiang, actually, maybe one country, multiple systems, but it's what happened in Qing Dynasty. After the revolution, you know, I, I always talk about revolution, you know. So right now it's uh, one one country, one system, actually, even we have the autonomy system, but it's the uh, same in general, diverse in detail. So we, we, can, we can say it's just uh, one country, one system. So uh, actually, uh, briefly, I want to emphasize only identity cannot lead to independence, lead to 
separatism. It's not enough. We, you, you know, if you only have a, a unique identity or separate identity, but how to how to make your own identity in uh, within a separate political unit is very complicated. We, I think for Hong Kong, for Tibet, for Xinjiang, in my view, separatism is always a mission impossible. Right now, I, we, we, we still can say this. Maybe it might be possible according to the macro context, historical context changed. That's the only possibility. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Let's thank the speakers for a very interesting and illuminating presentation. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, speakers. And I think the next panel will be happening in about six minutes. So can you please make your way to your, the, the adjacent Sheikh Zayed Theatre for the last panel? Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you.